and then Genesis, the verse, and then the reference again. Here we go. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Wait on that one. It's going to get better as the months go by. That's a pretty much of a Debbie Downer. Okay? But I had an elder friend of mine. His name was Al Verdun. He said, you got to know the good news before you can hear the good news. I had another friend. His name is Bill Iverson. He said, Ned, why don't you go to the doctor this, today? You going to the doctor today? No, Bill, I'm not going to the doctor. Well, why not? Well, Bill, I'm not sick. You know, people are like that about sin. They don't know they're sick. They don't go to the doctor. They don't go to Jesus unless they know they're sick. Well, here in Genesis 4 is a text. I hope you'll see that the human race has a sickness, and it gets pretty bad pretty fast. Open with me to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 12. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field... The Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond he shall be on the earth. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, stark contrasts are one predominant aspect of the biblical revelation. You think of the tax collector, and you think there also of, of the Pharisee. The tax collector pleads for mercy. The Pharisee talks about how good he is and how he's not like the rest of those uh, sinners. Contrast. You've got the two thieves on the cross. The one of them is reviling Jesus continually, 
And then you have the other one who starts that way, but he thinks better of it and he repents and he says, oh, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus assured him that he would be in paradise that day. See the contrast. It's a lot of, you know, lightness, light and dark in the Bible. The third one, you got David and Saul. You got Saul who was shown his sin by the prophet Samuel. But he consistently, over several occasions, always went into full denial mode, always passing the blame, passing the buck. Whereas David, when he was shown his sin by the prophet uh, Nathan, he confessed it and he bewailed his manifold sin, his adultery, and his murder. The dualism between the saved and the condemned is laid down here as a template in chapter 4 of Genesis, in the lives of Cain and Abel. And we're going to consider the reasons for their contrasting ends. And we're going to dig into the text, including the text just nine verses earlier in Genesis 3.15, if you look there, where uh, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we see the enmity between the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. And God didn't want the righteous issue of Eve to be sidling up to uh, the uh, wicked issue that were traced to the serpent. It came through Eve, but they were uh, the father of them was the serpent, not literally, but spiritually speaking. We see this in the New Testament. If you turn over there with me to 1 John and chapter number 3 and verse 12. 1 John 3 and verse 12. We see a famous reference to Cain in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. So let's consider the evil works, the righteous works of these men and see where they come from. As we consider three points, verses one through five, two sons in their offerings, two responses to temptation and two kinds of blood. And I wanna ask you of the two, which applies to you? Think about that and see where you end up at the end of the sermon. Verses 1 to 5, two sons in their offerings. God gave Adam and Eve two sons. Here at the beginning of chapter 4, after Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden, they are blessed with children. You remember in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, we heard that they were created in the image of God and they were meant to fill the earth and subdue it. And the idea behind that is that as they multiply as sinless beings, that, that was you know, a possibility then, that they would go out and spread across the whole globe. And since they were image bearers, they reflected the image of God in the fullness of the capability of any part of creation. It says the heavens declare the glory of God, but there's a difference between declaring and reflecting the image of God itself. You as image bearers have a higher potentiality of glorifying God than even the stars. And so you have uh, that 
potential as you come in Jesus Christ to be restored as his image. Well, here they get right going on to that uh, fill the earth and subdue it thing. And Adam knew what Eve is wife. And we see in this word knowledge that the act of marriage is one that involves knowledge. Michael Polanyi wrote a great book, Personal Knowledge. He was a scientist. He was a philosophy scientist. He said, all uh, knowledge, even in the scientific realm, has a personal element, an investment that scientists make into it. And uh, in, the, in the family world, we have a personal knowledge of our wife, if you're a man, or of our husband, if you're a wife. And we have this knowledge of God, which is deep-rooted into our being when we are restored into our relationship with him by faith. And as a matter of fact, it has been said that when Eve declares here in verse 1, I have acquired a man from the Lord, this is an act of faith. She's saying it isn't just about me and Adam and our knowledge of one another. It's my knowledge of you. There was an affirmation of faith for Adam in a very clear way. We saw last week in chapter 3, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. He was believing that death was not the last word, but that that promise in 3.15 applied. And so he called her the mother of the living, that life would come forth from her. There was a future. That was a statement of faith. In that promise, 315, there would be a future. And now here, she is having faith. I have acquired a man from the Lord. I am dependent on him. It's not just about me and Adam. It's about the Lord's blessing. C.S. Lewis talks about that relationship in marriage between a husband and a wife. He says, the Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. You see how artificial that is? You, you chew things for the taste, you spit them out. That's like having sex outside of marriage. You're not going for the whole deal. The deep knowledge that comes about between husbands and wives that includes sex, but is not limited to sex. And so there's a beautiful picture here of the start of Eve's walk of faith. And when she gets Cain, his name means acquire. I procured him from the Lord, so I'm going to call him acquire. And as we look now at the second verse, we see that she bore again, this time his brother Abel. His word means, means breath. And some have said that that was a, a speaking of the passing quality of his life, that it would be like a breath that passes away. I'm not so sure, but I just want you to know, here is a man who was born also as a fulfillment of the great uh, mandate, the great dominion mandate that we should fill the earth and subdue it. Now a contrast, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. They had different jobs, 
both of them blessed by God. For even Cain was doing the job that his father Adam had done in the garden. In verse 15, it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend. That word tend is the same word in the Hebrew as that word Cain was a tiller of the ground. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was getting into that thing that, that, that God had gotten into, where we saw him bring the uh, skins to Adam and Eve to give them a covering. So there was an acquaintance there with the living beings, and he tended them. Now, as far as their offerings are concerned, we have to consider the fact that when you are bringing an offering, you're giving yourself if you take a look at verse number uh, four, we see Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. And then verse five, but he did not respect Cain and his offerings. And the commentators point out that those summary statements Abel and his offering, and Cain and his offering, with the man named first, Abel and his offering, Cain and his offering, point out that when we give an offering, we're giving ourselves. We can't wrap ourselves up in a little ball and put ourselves in that offering plate, but we give our, something of significance from us that represents our labor and our savings and our stewardship of our money, and our wise investment of our money, and we give it as a representation of who we are, and we give it as a representation of our loyalty and love for God. And so we see a contrast here that in some way God indicated that the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he didn't respect Cain. Commentators, again, have suggested, how did he know? Was it an inner feeling? But no, I think there was something more objective about it. And lots of commentators say that fire consumed Abel's offering, just like it consumed Elijah's offering there on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 19. And there was uh, an aspect of, of, of a feeling of, how, how about me? What's going on with me? Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell when his offering was not respected. What is it about the one offering of Abel and the other of Cain that distinguishes them? Go back to verse 3, and it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. A lot of different theories have been suggested to why the one was not accepted and the one was. Uh, one is one I've alluded to already, that the offering of Abel involved the killing of an animal, killing of a sheep with the shedding of blood, and that that followed the model that Abel became aware of, even that he heard the stories in his family from his mother and father 
that the Lord God himself had brought those skins of animals to cover them when they were trying simply to cover up with fig leaves. And I'm not going to absolutely reject that. I, I can't reject a whole strain of interpretation that goes back for the centuries. But I am leaning more in a different direction in terms of my understanding of the text. Because it seems a little bit odd that Cain, who was doing the very job that his father, Adam, had done, and that Adam had been commanded to do in the garden in 2.15, that Cain would not even have access to such an offering if he was even to want to give it. And there is this aspect that goes back to David's, King David's de declaration. If you turn with me, please, to uh, 1 Samuel. Sec excuse me, 2 Samuel. The 24th chapter. And see there how David wants to have a place to make a sacrifice. And he was called by Gad, the prophet, in verse 18, 2 Samuel 24, 18. And Gad came to that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. And, around, and, and, and uh, Araunah offers to give the land to him, give him the threshing floor and give him the, the oxen. But here David refuses. Verse 24 then the king said to Arauna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So if Cain was to get an offering from his brother, I, I guess maybe he could pay him off with some vegetables, but it would be a second-hand offering. It would, be, it would be an offering that he hadn't raised, he hadn't nurtured, he didn't, hadn't invested in himself. So I'm inclined not to go with the type of offering as it is, but more toward the quality of the offering, more toward the nature of the heart that gave the offering. And you notice in verse 3, it says that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. No distinguishing features. Maybe it's an overripe uh, avocado. Uh, could have been that broccoli. He really didn't want to eat anyway. Somebody said that the offering was kale. That was on Facebook. So <laughs> you all love kale, don't you? But there was nothing special about it. It was what he had at hand. Contrast that, please. Go to the next verse and take a look. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. He gave the best type and the best kind. The kind is its firstborn. He gave the firstborn lamb. He brought the one that... He had not even had a bite of eat to any of it. He brought it to the Lord. He brought it to the Lord and he brought alongside of it special portions of fat. Now, I know, I know I'm not so healthy. 
Oh, my cardiologist tells me I'm not so healthy. I'm working on it. But I just don't cut the fat off of my steak. I'm sorry. There's a nice little thing of fat along there. I just eat it with the lean. That's where the flavor is. Now, some of you are wincing. I know, I'm sorry, it disappointed you. But, but I'm saying to you, the fat is where the taste is. And this offering is of the best. The fat and the firstborn. The firstborn has a very special place in the Bible. Indeed, an offering was given for the firstborn because they, that one belonged to the Lord and you would bring an offering to the temple to sort of redeem that firstborn back. The firstborn of Egypt was taken, but the firstborn of Israel was spared in the Passover. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He was obviously from eternity always existing. But when it's used in Colossians, and that word firstborn is used there. It says that he is the head. That means he's got the top place over any of the creation. And here we see that Abel gave the best. I want to ask you, are you giving with a heart of faith? Because you see, you've got to have a heart of faith if you're going to give the best. If you have a heart of flesh that's hard to God, you don't want to let stuff go out of your control because who knows, well, maybe I'll need that tomorrow. But when you have a heart of faith, you believe that God has provided for you in the past and he will provide for you in the future and he will do his good and gracious work so that you can be reckless and abandoned and give and write that tithe check to put in the plate as the first check you write when you're giving and divvying up your paycheck, that you give first to the Lord and trust him that he is good and faithful to you and he will continue to be faithful to you and that you want a delicious, aromatic, delightfully uh, beautiful aroma to rise up to God even as the fat of your flock is offered to God. What kind of son and what kind of offering are you bringing? Well, this man, Cain, was angry. We see in verse 5, and his countenance fell. Which brings us to our next point. Two responses to temptation, verses 6 through 9. The response of faith and the response of unbelief. The Lord presents the first option in verse 6 and the first phrase of 7. Yes, have faith. Why, why is your countenance fallen? In other words, wake up and face your problem. When God asks us a question, it doesn't mean we don't have an option. We can respond in faith. We can say, yes, Lord, I'm getting the message. And then he says in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you respond in faith, is there not also an opportunity for you to be forgiven? Isn't there an opportunity for you to forsake this temptation and not even fall into it and need forgiveness? Is there an opportunity for you to avoid this terrible stress that's coming into your life as your anger? And anger is a prelude to so many sins. For it breaks down the barriers of restraint that we normally have. The social norms that lead us not to do something. When we're anger, angry, 
It's lifted up and we rise up. And this is what Cain did. He did not listen to the Lord in faith. Instead, he allowed that sin which lied at the door to seize him. If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Meredith Klein uh, says that this picture of sin crouching at the door is like a picture of a coiled serpent that wants to get into your life. It's a, it's a rattlesnake, not off on you know, the mountains up in the Adirondacks. Instead, it's right at your door. It's ready to coil and strike in through the door to attack you. And God's warning pictures Cain's murderous purpose like an entrance demon, an allusion to the serpent or Satan, coiling at the door of his heart, desiring to master him. And Jesus echoes this warning to those who scheme to kill him in John 8, 37, exposing them as children of the devil, the murderer form from the beginning, murderer from the beginning, whose desire the Pharisees were bent on carrying out in plotting to kill Jesus. And we read that unquote. And we read that in John 8, 44, he speaks of the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The Lord warns Cain, his desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And the very exhortation to rule over it, the expectation brings with it the promise of assistance. When God expects us to do something, he brings the resources from the treasury of his grace to accomplish it. And so he doesn't expect us to fight temptation on our own. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You see, we're not in unique situations. We, we feel sorry for ourselves when we face temptations often. We, we feel sorry for ourselves because, oh, oh, I can't believe it. I'm tempted to steal. I'm tempted to commit adultery in this situation. I'm tempted to lie. I'm tempted to covet. Oh, it's just worse. Nobody ever felt like I felt like right now. But God says, hey, what you're going through is common to humanity. I've been there with people before, and I'm here with you if you will just turn to me. I will provide the way of escape. I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But Cain, having had a personal counseling session with the Lord here, the Lord personally comes to him. He didn't listen. And he goes out to the field, and Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Some say the conversation was an argument, and so they got fighting, and so something riled up, and then they 
and he just took him out. Others say it was a disarming conversation. He was just talking, like, hey, let's go out in the field and let's go uh, walk in the beauties of God's creation. And he took him unawares when he wasn't expecting it. But I want you to know that this act itself of murder is reflected of the great division that's developing in humanity now. The enmity that the seed of the serpent, that's Cain, has for the seed of the woman, and that's Abel. And this enmity rises to a head very quickly, which is the way our sin can act. I warn you, don't think that you are going to have all kinds of intermediary steps when it comes to sin. God could just step back. If your heart is set on doing evil, he could set back and turn you over to evil, and you could be in prison in no time. And the hate that's behind the murder, that also is condemned by Christ. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, the murdering of someone in the heart. The Sixth Commandment in the Westminster Shorter Catechism requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. And this is a point of conviction that comes here when we see God approaching Cain. Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He makes an excuse. He doesn't know, he says, but he did know. He killed him. The body's out there in the field. And he asked the general question, what are you asking me for? Am I my brother's keeper? I want to ask you to consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want you to consider what Jesus said when he was asked by a rich man. He was asked, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the man was trying to wriggle out of that by saying, okay, so who's my neighbor? And the Lord gave the story of a Jewish man who got beaten up out on a roadway. And the Levite came back by and the priest came by and they both walked by on the other side. They did not consider that one a neighbor. But the Samaritan came along, the one from a despised group he cared for this Jewish man. I want you to consider your heart. Are you going to be living in accord with the Ten Commandments when our system of doctrine, the Westminster Confession, suggests that the positive command that comes out of the sixth of the Ten Commandments is that we are meant to consider all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. When you come across someone like that in the providence of God, how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you be one who cares and keeps? Or will you be one who walks on the other side? I call you today to consider, thirdly and finally, two kinds of blood. Verses 10 through 12. There are two kinds of blood which are spilled in the face of evil. There is the blood of Abel, and there is the blood of Christ. The first blood is a blood that brings conviction of guilt and brings accountability and cries out for justice. The second is a blood that does provide justice 
in its very existence that there would be a Savior perfect, a Lamb of God without blemish who dies on the cross for his people, and that that justice is established that God has rent upon him the wrath which we deserve. But what it cries out to us is mercy. Come, O sinner, come you who have even hated in your heart this past week, any who have lusted in their heart, any who have coveted what was someone else's or stolen. Don't run from God, and I'm thankful you're here. I'm thankful you're with God's people, for you are here under the hope of the gospel, that here we have in Christ a Savior whose blood pleads mercy. I want to come to you today out of Hebrews 12. If you turn over there with me, Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23 and 24. This is talking about the church, worshiping God with the church that's even in the heavenlies right now. And we pick it up in 22, Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood speaks rightly of justice, but it is a better thing to bring mercy with justice. Even here in Genesis chapter 4, the Lord says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth. And we'll get more into that next week. But I want to suggest to you that the brother's blood that cries out to the Lord from the ground that is Abel's does nothing to solve Cain's problem. But when Jesus' blood cries out to the heavens and cries out to us, it speaks of mercy. You see the situation? Cain was the older brother. Older brothers are supposed to take care of the younger brothers. My older brother took care of me. He rescued me when I was lost in the main woods for two hours. Everybody else had come back into the house. They were waiting for the state police. My older brother didn't give up. He kept calling for me, and I heard him, and my cousin who I was with heard him, and we came out toward him, he was doing what an older brother should do. He was keeping me. Cain did not keep Abel. He did not take care of Abel. But we have a firstborn whose name is Jesus. He is the only begotten son of the father. And he came to reconcile us not only to his father, but to restore the family bond as well. As it says in Romans 8, 29, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, we ought to answer yes. But the ultimate answer to the problem of Cain and his denial 
of God and the killing of his brother is the true firstborn who shed his own blood to make us family today. Which son do you belong to? Do you belong to Jesus or to that other firstborn, Cain? Who are you trusting? How is your life unrolling in terms of mercy? Will you plead the mercy of Jesus that saved you? Or will you live in the darkness of Cain's dastardly deed? Two sons in their offerings. One was from the heart. The other was not. Two responses to temptation. Come to Jesus. He will bring you through. Two kinds of blood. Trust in Christ. Nothing but the blood. Let us pray. Bless these dear ones. May we all know who we belong to. May we all know that that is Christ, that his blood avails for us and changes how we give and how we love and how we live. We pray in Jesus' name.